0: Indeed, Father, we do long to worship you through your Son, and we praise you that we are here at this moment to conduct that very spiritual exercise in your presence. We pray you receive our service with grace and appreciation in the heavenly places, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We will open our Bibles this morning yet again to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 15, and this is the section of the epistle where Paul reveals something of his personality, of his personal relationships. We shouldn't be surprised. It's interesting, if you've ever thought of it, how so many things in the Christian life are a combination of the human and the divine. I mean, Christ himself is a combination of the human and the divine. Certainly the the church, all Christians are a combination of the human and the divine. We're still human, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us that so is the written word, a combination of God's inspiration and the personality and attributes of the of the man he chose to write these things down. And so something of the Apostle Paul comes through here, certainly when we see in chapter 16 when he calls people out by name and talks about how much he misses them and desires to see them and all such things as that. He gives a real personal touch to it. And he does that here as well. I'm going to read verses 17 through 23. And so Paul writes, and this picks up right where we left off last week, Paul writes, "...therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus, in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ... And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, To whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come, may come to you. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you that you bless this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul's telling them he's longing to come to them. He's going to come. He does get to Rome, as we know, kind of a circuitous way. He got arrested and had to appeal to to Caesar. He had to appeal to the Supreme Court of the land, and since he had rights as a citizen, they had to take him there. And if you go to the, uh, the book of Acts, you'll see um, at the very end of the book of Acts, we read of the, uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 28. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And that's how the book of Acts just sort of ends abruptly. We wish it would go on. It's a great story, and there's so much uh, conjecture that we make about what happened to Paul after that. Did he ever get to Spain? He keeps saying he wants to go to Spain. It appears he didn't get to Spain, but some people think he did. I'm not one of those. I think he ended in Rome. But um, let's look into what he says this morning. Therefore, I have reason to glory. Reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. Now, what is this word, glory? Um, Is anyone reading from the ESV this morning? The ESV says, I have reason to be proud. Other versions say, I have reason for boasting. (laughs) In other words, glory, glory is usually a noun, the the word doxa in the Greek. It's it's a noun in the the Bible. When we speak of glory, what's the glory of God? Well, it's that sort of celestial radiance or something that emanates from Christ Um, or God the Father, that uh, something special, you know, an angel would be uh, in our sight would have some sort of personal glory attended him the shekinah glory we spoke of the fire of god in the wilderness and so glory is is a noun the word doxa but here it's a verb kokamai is the verb and it can be taken in a number of different ways Um, there is a glory that attends God and attends man, for that matter, and attends the heavenly bodies. We know the sun had a greater glory, the moon a lesser glory, we're told, right? Um, But this idea of glorying as a verb, as an action word, um, is something the apostle uses in this context. I have reason to glory, he says, in Christ Jesus, in the things which pertain to God. And we're going to see something of the personality of Paul in this. The Apostle Paul is an intriguing and complicated person. I think we know that. Um, He's the undisputed Christian authority of his age, in fact, of all ages. He was entrusted with a holy charge to pen the oracles of God, which amounts to a full two-thirds of the New Testament. An enormous privilege, while at the same time, a devastating burden. You might think, boy, I wish God called upon me to write the New Testament. Well, maybe you do. Let's see what it cost Paul to do it. It was an enormous privilege, and at the same time, a devastating burden. You had to call upon the right guy to carry such a burden. And so Paul writes this, But in whatever anyone is bold... I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. You think he's glorying a bit here? In labors more abundant and stripes above measure. But look at the things he glories in. He glories in strenuous effort. He calls it labor. He glories in stripes, which are lashings of a whip. In prisons more frequently. Imagine boasting about the times you spent in prison for the sake of the gospel. That's how how the infant church was birthed. It was birthed in a prison cell. There are five Epistles that were written from a cell. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. <laughs> from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. They were such legalists. The Lord told them they could give 40 stripes, but they always, in case they miscounted, they could only give 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. You think he was, was in peril? In weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often. Have you ever said, oh, I just can't do anything if I don't get my eight hours? (laughs) Paul, Paul gloried that he didn't always get his eight hours. In sleeplessness, often. In hunger, I can't do anything unless I've had my lunch. I just get jittery, my blood sugar goes way up. In hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. He never loses sight of his goal to build up, to establish, to edify the churches of God. That's his resume. So how do you qualify to be a, uh, an evangelist for God? Well, I lose a lot of sleep over the churches, for one. Don't mind being beaten, throw me in prison. God will use me there too. There's another passage that speaks to what we may call Paul's adventures and sacrifice. You know, it's interesting, when you're in the middle of a sacrifice, it's a horrific thing. When you're in the middle of toil and tribulation, and you're giving up the things we take for granted, our freedom for one, our health, right, our comforts, and so, but after it's all done, and you come out on the other end, it's sort of an adventure. You get to tell the story. And so Luke tells this story right after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. You know the story. I looked up some of the famous artwork on that this morning. There's almost none without a horse in it. Almost none. Rembrandt didn't have a horse, but between you and me, the Dutch master didn't pull it off for me. Caravaggio's was much better even though there was a horse, and there's no horse in the story, as you know. But here he is, he makes it to Damascus, and now he's a Christian, right? They didn't expect him to come with the message of the gospel. He came to destroy those who carried that message. And so Luke writes, In Damascus, the governor under Aratas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison. A whole bunch of soldiers guarding the city... Desiring to arrest me, he said. Something happened to Paul on the way here. Bring out a garrison, and when he comes in, I want him in irons. Desiring to arrest me. And then, he, then Luke writes, Paul, actually Paul's speaking, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands second corinthians 11 of course the story in acts is in chapter 9 i believe and so with all these challenges is it any wonder that he glories in the finished work of christ which he was uniquely crafted to accomplish he was a a creation of god made for this purpose and all of that zeal that God gave him, he knew at one point in time he would channel it for Christ, and there would be no better man in the earth to do it than Paul. I really dare say there was probably no other man who would write that resume and glory in it. I thought of a story many years ago, a friend of ours back at the old Mullen Hill Church. Pastor Ken was the pastor, and I won't say names, <laughs> But this couple, they were very dear friends of ours, and they had a son, and boy, was he a brat. And he was over there, and he's acting up, and he's, you know, you know how kids do. And he's rebellious, and he's all about me and what I want. And Pastor Ken, and this is how Ken dealt with that stuff. He walked over, and he said, boy, he's going to make a great preacher someday. (laughs) He's got all that zeal. He's going to be a great minister. And I said, yeah, a prison minister. (laughs) Years later, years later, I was home. It was in 2013. You remember I had an accident. I broke a lot of ribs and a shoulder and a wrist, and I was laid up for many weeks. And that couple came to the house. And she she reminded me of that, and I couldn't remember saying it. I thought, oh, man, this woman must hate me for saying this. The kid was a prison minister. Praise God for prophecy fulfilled, hallelujah. He's a man, the Apostle Paul is a man with a great intellect, a great heart for God and the people of God, and so he writes authoritatively. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He writes authoritatively, he writes strongly, he writes definitively. For the doctrines of the churches of Christ are not up for argumentation, and friends, they're not up for amendment. We don't vote on them. We don't say, you know, the Lord was a little harsh there. Um, I'm going to write a bill that we can all vote on that just takes the edge off his commandments. Friends, the kingdom of God is just that. It's a kingdom. Never lose sight of that. It's not an oligarchy. You know what an oligarchy is? It's like ruled by a few elites. It's not a democracy that's ruled by a lot of dumb people. Truth that is truth must come to us from above, friends. And smart people, but a lot of dumb. What they call the low information voter. (laughs) That's another word for voter. The directives of the true churches come from Christ himself. And this apostle has been entrusted with them as no other man had ever been entrusted. And he knows it. And he's dying. I just feel he's dying to say it. But you really can't boast about yourself. You can only boast in Christ. And it holds him back. And the Lord God transformed this persecutor of the church to use his zeal for the sake of Christ. And so he fights against the pretenders of such. While at the same time, his loving heart bleeds for the plight of the early Christians Establishing the churches of God in a contrary and violent world. And so he reminds us of the sacrifices that are necessary to the building of the kingdom of God in the earth. And so he writes, as the truth is in Christ, no one will stop me from boasting. Why? Because I do not love you, He's saying, I'm boasting about you. It's a sign of my love for you. God knows, but what I do, (coughs) I will continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. They They want their boasting to be equal to our boasting, but we're boasting about the works of Christ, the Magnalia Christi Americana. The great works of Christ in America, of course, he would have left out the American part. But what I do, I will also continue to do, he writes, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles. Friends, an apostle is attended by great gifts and powers which he's going to speak about. And he uses those as evidence that he is an apostle and there are imposters. And if you go to Revelation chapter two, when God talks to the seven churches, Jesus talks to them through John, right? And he talks to the church of Ephesus. He says something to the effect that you tried those who were false apostles and found them liars. So Paul writes, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You know, you can't always tell who is the true and false minister by looking. You can't always tell by rhetoric. That's why we learn doctrine. If you don't carry the truth with you, you're a false apostle or false minister. It's the doctrine. It's the truth. It's the teaching that reveals who you are and who you work for. And that's why Paul wrote it down. That's why the Lord had it written down. And so to assure the saints that genuine love and righteous authority go hand in hand, friends, genuine love and righteous authority go hand in hand. He's willing to do battle with the forces of evil for the sake of the church. Again to the Corinthians. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence am lowly towards you, but I beg you that when I present, that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. In other words, I come in and I'm a meek little man. I'm an apostle. I look human like any of you, but don't presume I come only in the flesh, for though I walk in the flesh, though we walk in the flesh We do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God for casting down arguments, pulling down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Don't think we come merely in the flesh. We come wielding the power of God this apostle says. So we considered the person and personality of the apostle Paul. We saw from the previous verses that he's overjoyed in the spiritual growth and the personal goodness of the saints of Rome. He's written to them of the reports that have come to him from traveling believers throughout the empire with regard to the spiritual attainments of the members of the Roman church. You remember in a a previous verse, verse 14, he said to them, you are full of goodness. He hasn't been there, but he knows them. He knows the stories of them. He has heard about their witness from reliable sources. He says, you're filled with all knowledge. You're able to admonish one another. In other words, you can continue this experiment in sanctification that I began. And as we've been studying for the past two weeks, admonishment is an advanced form of teaching. It's a loving form of correction that leads fellow saints to obedience in the things of God. First, it comes with teaching. You have to know what God requires of you. And then it comes with admonishment. You have to do the things that God requires of you. And perhaps he said it best to the Galatians when he said it this way. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." That's the law of admonishment, friends, one Christian to the other. Now, such a commendation of Paul is the essence of the church in action. It's the visible, viable witness that the Spirit of God dwells in those saints in that church. It's their actions that show it. Jesus gave his life, a a ransom for the many, so the saints of Rome are fulfilling the law of Christ. And I can say as a concerned under-shepherd of God, that I believe our congregation of saints is equally fulfilling this high and holy calling. We've become a body of believers who rejoice with those who rejoice, who weep with those who weep, and you should hear the saints pray for your needs on Friday afternoon when we come together. No one is left out. And so I'd go so far as to say that the saints of Lakeville have followed and are fulfilling the call of the apostle for all the saints. So he wrote earlier in the epistle of the character of the people of God. We should never forget this from chapter 12, where Paul writes to the saints of Rome, let love be without hypocrisy. Imagine fake love. (laughs) Fake love abhor what is evil friends we have to love what god loves but we have to hate what god hates abhor means hate cling to what is good be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit serving the lord rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation Continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And he goes on. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, don't start fights. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire upon his head. I take that as... As coals of conviction upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is a glory in Christ that you may boast about. There is a glory in the churches of Christ that should shine through us. For we are the image bearers of his spirit. I had a friend the other day. We were out to dinner together. And he texted me later and said he was glad to have been with me and he said you are the light of the world I didn't probe it what he meant by that maybe I had a shiny tie on I don't know (laughs) that can't be it I wasn't wearing a tie (laughs) friends we're the imago dei the image of God always sounds better in Latin don't you think The image of God of whom the writer of Hebrew writes, his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world's who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name even than they. That's the Christ in which we glory. Friends, there is undoubtedly a glory in Christ, but make no mistake, the glory of the Savior shines forth in the church. Don't expect everyone to see it. They didn't see it in Christ. There wasn't a lot of glorying at Calvary, right? They were castigating him, mocking him. While he was there dying for them. It's that glory that Paul refers to here. He's talking about the glory of Christ that shows through the church. Friends, Christ is not here in the flesh, but the church is here in the flesh. If the souls of our day are to hear the truth of the gospel, if they are to see the light of Christ, it must come through the church. Friends, we're the light of the world. There's no other agency in our time that speaks for Christ. Jesus himself did say of the church that you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. Don't let it be hidden. Let your lights so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, they see God's glory in the church. They see the glory of Christ in the saint. Even as Paul glories in the church, so does Christ himself glory in the company of those whom he has redeemed. And so we read from Ephesians, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Parents, did you ever feel that your children are your glory and you're, you're proud of them? You're glad with what they have become and what shows through in them. And that's what Paul is saying here that Christ sees in the church. Now, the world loves to be critical of the church. Don't ever be surprised by it. They point out all our hypocrisies, and I'm sure they are many. I'm certain that in our residual humanness, our hypocrisies are there to be seen in abundance. You ever hear someone say, the church is full of hypocrites? I say, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just one of them. Why fight it? You've been hypocritical about something. It's all part of the mystery to them. They can't understand why, why you're the church. Like, why do you think you're speaking for God? What's special about you? They can't see the saint in the sinner. All they see is the sinner. And if it's your family, they know you're a sinner. They've always known. You can't redo the past, right? They're blinded to the new birth because of all the evidence of the old birth. Right? You're standing there deteriorating just like they are. They squint at the light having become comfortable in the darkness. You ever know when you get up in the morning? It's still dark. Really hard to turn that light off for the first time. That's the the unbeliever. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Go away! (laughs) They cannot see brotherly love because they're bound up in self-love. They cannot even see the glory of a suffering savior. Why? Because they presume he suffered for someone else. They themselves see no evil in themselves. They cannot know the divine truth as they are immersed in human wisdom. They can't imagine that he's dying for their sin. What sin? Look at me. You know, Jesus spoke about this very thing so many times, but one very notably from Matthew 13, where he told the parable of the soils. Remember he told the parable of the soils? Um, the different conditions of the soil. And um, and he tells it on the hillside there, and all the people are like, what does he mean? What is he talking about dirt for? You know, we're all farmers. I think we know about dirt. But what's that going to do with God? Why is this itinerant preacher telling us about dirt? And the disciples, too, they're like... Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? And what do you suppose he said? I'll tell you what he said. You want to know what he said? (laughs) He said, because it's been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. I don't write this stuff. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Definitely not a dictative socialism that we hear so much about today. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, he says, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. In other words, they hear the word of God, but they can't see the meaning of it. They can't know the depth of it. Hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And he goes in and tells them exactly what it means. No more metaphor. No more symbol. He just tells them the different conditions of the heart and so forth. Which I hope you know what the parable of the soil. is. And so the Savior unravels the mystery of the parable in plain language to those whom he chooses to unravel it to. But why them? That's what the world is asking. Why them? That's what some of us are asking. Why me? I had say, someone said to me the other night, who I hadn't seen in a long time, and he said something. These aren't his exact words, but I, it didn't slip by me that he noted that you were really um, kind of a pest in your young life, he might have used the word pest an obnoxious pest Pssst, you know yeah, I remember that so why you, like why me Paul tells us why Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world. And the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And he goes on to conclude that all of this is done so that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of us he writes this. But you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Verse 18, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed. Now I think this is revealing about Paul's Personality. And I'll go into why I think that is. If this apostle is to boast, it will only be in the things he's accomplished by the hand of God upon him. He won't take credit for another man's work. His own efforts outside his call to ministry are just that his efforts. Let's face it, we all do many things in this life, some of which we may say are done in Christ, and others we do for our own satisfaction, right? I think if we're honest, we won't say, oh, I did that for the Lord. Now, I can tell you that though this is the truth of the human condition, it is the goal of the believer to change that situation. It is the goal of the Christian to do all things as to the Lord. Yet Paul's willing to boast. He's willing to glory in the building of and the existence of the churches of God in the areas where he took part in it, and in Rome he didn't. He did not build the church of Rome. Or did he? Maybe he had a part in it. He knows a lot of people there. But he refrains from glorying in anything pertaining to his own personal efforts. And he writes of it elsewhere. Quoting Jeremiah, he writes, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. To the Philippians... He wrote similarly, he said, But what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know, he's saying, Let it be well with my soul. It is well with my soul this morning. That's sort of the same sentiment of a man that lost so much. But my soul's okay because I have Christ. I don't have those other things, and you know, now that I think of it, in some ways, they were hindering me from recognizing my soul's need for Christ. In some ways, they blinded me. In some ways, they stole my affection that was due only to the Lord. Things can do that. People can do that. You love your spouse, but you love Christ first. You love your children, but you love Christ first. Bear with me in a little folly, will you? I can say that because Paul said it, although the Holy Spirit said it through Paul. (laughs) I sometimes wonder if Paul, in all his boasting, in all his glorying in the establishment of the churches in the great cities of the ancient world, is not here in this passage expressing a slight disappointment that the church of Rome, which he glories in, but he had no part in building it. Now, he's clearly glorying in their spiritual growth and doctrinal refinement. Once again, he said, you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another, but yet he still writes them this lengthy doctrinal treatise to make sure they got it all straight, right? He's saying, you're able to admonish one another, but I'm going to admonish you too, because I have my role before God, Is it possible that Paul laments the progress of this church apart from his personal efforts and wishes that he was not hindered from going to them? Obviously, it's true. He kept saying, I wanted to come to you, but I was hindered. He even says at one place, Satan hindered me. Remember one morning or one evening, he was thinking he was uh, going to Asia, and he woke up, and there was a man from Macedonia, a vision from God, saying, no, go to Macedonia. (laughs) No, he was hindered. He was directed. And he never got to Rome, but this great church rose up anyway. And so I wonder if his meaning here is that he has much of which to boast of in Christ. And though he claims to glory in that church, he at the same time could not be accused of glorying in his own efforts because he didn't minister there. So he's saying, I glory in you, but I wouldn't glory in anything that I didn't take part in. And so he says in this verse, I'll not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, like this great church of Rome. And I'm going like this as though it's a cathedral. It wasn't. It wasn't. I have no commentator's note to agree with me on this. Nevertheless, it seems plausible to the context. But if that's his meaning, it did not avert his effort in producing this great work that we have before us, the epistle to the Romans. It's by all accounts the greatest, his greatest work, his greatest statement of the things we truly believe. Friends, I would not want to see the Christianity that would erupt if we didn't have the epistle to the Romans to remind us of what Christianity should be and should look like. And should believe. Remember that though he was not personally responsible for the founding of the church in Rome, two Roman citizens, Aquila and Priscilla, I know, Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, who had been exiled from Rome by the edict of Claudius. You go back to Acts 18, you'll see that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. It's a historical thing. So they were in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, right? <laughs> we're in Rome. And uh, what were they doing there? They were establishing the church. They were spreading the gospel. That's for sure. We know that much about Priscilla and Aquila. You know, a lot is made by commentators that they're mentioned six times, and four of the times Priscilla's mentioned first. And oh, it's the woman's movement of the age. I've said Christianity is the first woman's movement. It's the first movement that um, gave equal credence to a woman's spiritual gifts, to a woman's contributions to good things paul and jesus both used women extensively in their ministries right and so these probable founders aquila and priscilla learned their craft and when i say craft i don't mean tent making they already knew that they learned their craft of ministering from paul who brought it back with them upon their return now, if you remember, they were tent makers, Paul was a tent maker, and they got together and had a, little, had a little tent makers guild, started a union, and they were there making tents, which is making all sorts of cloth and canvas things that are necessary for, you know, life in that time. And so in chapter 16 of this epistle, Paul writes, "'Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus,' who risked their necks for my life. Now we didn't know that, but he's telling us that. They risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And then he says this, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The church. Now it's conceivable that in a great city like Rome, there were several, if not many, congregations of saints. There were millions of people in Rome, at least one million at the time. And they may have met secretly in small groups to evade detection. They wouldn't, like, come out, you know, a thousand strong into the town square, probably, where Claudius had already kicked the Jews out, because he expired. He went by the way. And um, who came in next to him? Tiberius? Um, Tiberius. Tiberius. So it's conceivable that, you know, he died. Remember when, when Herod died, the angel told Joseph and Mary, well, you can come back. <laughs> He's gone, you know. Well, that probably happened here. And so he, Paul's writing to this, to Rome, where he had never been, didn't found the church, but he had worked with a, Aquila and Priscilla and taught them their ministry craft, and they went to Rome ahead of him and founded a great church. However, it cannot be discounted that this couple who were personally trained by Paul for ministry did found the church to whom he writes. They were certainly fellow workers with Paul in the founding of the Corinthian church. We saw that from where Paul dictated this epistle to his faithful servant, Tertius. Paul's in Corinth, in the house of Gaius, where the church of Corinth is, and Tertius, the secretary, is sitting there and he comes out it's like it's like if he was if the director's filming a movie and he sticks his head in the camera and says hi i'm here that's what tertius does here he has a little cameo appearance in paul's letter and he says here i am and from the great host house of gaius so gaius was this great greek christian of the time and paul's writing back to them and saying say hello to aquila and priscilla for me and the church that is in their house Verses 18 and 19, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I fully preach the gospel of Christ. Trace it in the last book of the Bible, the book of maps. Go back there and trace from Jerusalem up through the Mediterranean Sea, uh, uh, into the Aegean, around the horn of uh, the Peloponnesus, into uh, Greece and up the west coast of Greece. That's lyricum. And he says, I preached the gospel all through there. We know we did. We have the book of Acts. Friends, the gospel, it seems, is not fully preached apart from some verifying signs and wonders. Something has to attend it, it seems. Paul was empowered to perform many such works. Now, we must respect that every conversion entails a miraculous work of God upon a human spirit, right? Every conversion is miraculous. At the same time, we recognize that the conversion of Paul was even more spectacular, perhaps, than ours, I would say, wouldn't you? I've always found it interesting that when converting Paul, the Lord chose to turn his spiritual blindness into physical blindness for a time. Isn't that interesting? He was blinded for, what, three days, I think it was, and something like scales fell from his eyes. (laughs) And that when Paul performed a similar miracle upon Elimus, a sorcerer also whose name was Bar-Jesus, right? Sometimes Jesus is a bad name in the Bible, all right? Son of Jesus, Bar-Jesus, his name was translated Elimus. He was a sorcerer. And he tried to do what Paul did. And um, Paul performed a similar miracle on limas the sorcerer, and he too was blinded. And so we read about it from Acts. And we read this, but Saul, who was also called Paul, this is the first time Saul is called Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his eyes upon alimus the sorcerer and said oh full of all guile and all craftiness you son of the devil an enemy of all righteousness you will not cease or will you not cease to pervert the straight ways of the lord and now behold the hand of the lord is upon you and you shall be blind and not seeing the sun for a season i don't know how long a season is i don't know if it's like all summer you're not going to see the sun Paul and Barnabas, while preaching in Iconium, which is in Galatia, I believe, which is on the Asian continent where Turkey is today, they were given extraordinary powers. We read, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. You can poison a mind. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You notice they were opposed, and they stayed there longer and they met the opposition. And God gave them signs and wonders to prove that these were the apostles of God, right? Let's not forget Paul's exorcism in Philippi. Remember when he cast the demon out of the fortune-telling slave girl? I always found this interesting, and I I love this passage. The girl followed them around the city, and the spirit continually spoke out. But what the spirit spoke out was the gospel. Do you ever notice that? It says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. That's the evil spirit saying it to the girl. But I love this, this next verse. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, in other words, I'll do the preaching around here. Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So don't preach in my presence when I'm preaching. I might get annoyed. That's what Paul said. I'm not claiming the power, but boy, it'd be nice. The list goes on. In Corinth, he said, indeed, the signs of an apostle were demonstrated by me in all patience, in signs, and wonders, and miracles among you. In the school of Tyrannus, God performed miracles through Paul for two years, and we read, and God worked special works of power by the hands of Paul, so that even when handkerchiefs or cloths were brought from his body to those who were sick. The diseases departed from them, and the wicked spirits went out from them. You can still get those online. You can get that. No, there's certain preachers on TV that have, they have a special oil, and they have a special cloth that they'll send you prayer cloth for just a just a small one thousand uh, dollar you know contribution to our ministry. But you know, but people, but they think that this. You know, you've got to remember when you read the scriptures, there there are passages that are descriptive, and there are passages that are prescriptive. And if you mix them up, you mix up a lot. This is descriptive of what happened to them. It isn't prescriptive that anyone that preaches who has a handkerchief can heal everybody. But it happened then, right? And I think we know about the difference between description and prescription when we look at things like the story of Noah. God told Noah to build an ark. He didn't tell you know Tony Danza to build an ark, or uh, Steve Carell. You know he didn't. He didn't tell Russell Crowe to build an ark or John Voight. He didn't tell. Those are the movies I remember. He didn't tell any of them to build an ark. He just told Noah. The list goes on. He said, "Indeed, the signs of an apostle were demonstrated by me in all patience and signs and wonders and miracles among you." And of course we. Read about the school of tyrannus, And then Eutychus. Anyone remember Eutychus? Famous Eutychus. Shouldn't have fallen asleep during the service. He fell asleep during a worship service and fell from a third-story window and died. Friends, I'm thinking of building two more floors on this church. I built this one. I'm going to build two more. And I saw a couple nappers in here, and I'm going to put you up close to the window. But because I'm a nice guy, you Nappers, I'm going to put you close to the first story window so you just bump your head. And I'm going to send Dr. Chekelly out to revive you. <laughs> Is he breathing? <laughs> Paul revived Eutychus to life in Acts 20. You, gotta, you know, you've got to give Eutychus a break. Paul preached all night. I think if you go back there, you'll find he preached all night. Chapter 19 of Acts. And, you know... The Spirit was with him to keep him awake, but it's in his humanness he fell asleep. It fell three floors. Heaven help him. And it did. Paul healed Publius's father from fever and dysentery, and after that many others came and were healed. Suffice it to say, friends, that the word of itself is powerful. But for the sake of the authority of apostles of Christ, they were imbued with extraordinary powers of healing, from ailments. And then inflicting ailments. You know, you got to love that people talk today about the gospel heals, and they're talking about physical healing, just like it happened there. But no one talks about the physical inflicting of disease upon you, right? Like he did with Alimus, making him blind for a time, right? Or um, Herod Agrippa the first in Acts twelve, when it said he came out, and they said it's the glory of. Of a, of a God and not a man. In the next verse, Luke writes, and then he was eaten by worms and died. <clears throat> Suffice it to say, the word is powerful, but the, for the sake of the authority of the apostles of Christ, they were imbued with extraordinary powers of healing. And so those present knew that they were in the presence of the messenger of God. And so by their accounts, we too may be certain of Paul's extraordinary credentials. Father, in Jesus' name, bring us closer to you through your word. As the apostle came closer and brought many close, oh, Father, let the Holy Spirit be empowered yet again to make these words our own and these thoughts our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.